Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today I'm joined by golf course architect Tyler Ray. Tyler is one of the bright young architects in the golf industry. He has worked for Keith Foster, Bill Coor, and Ben Crenshaw, and most recently, Ron Pritchard. I joined Tyler to check out his work at Beverly Country Club in Chicago. Without further ado, here's Tyler Ray. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. How many uh, Donald Ross courses have you seen? I have about 30, 32 left to see. So if there's, you know, existing, if there's 342, I think, left existing, you know, about 45 of those have been altered, you know, beyond recognition. So if there's 297 left that are in the flesh, yeah, I probably have 30 or so left. How many of the, say, 290 or, that are in the flesh are close to their original, or, you know, is there a percentage that you would say are close to what they originally were? There are probably, gosh, probably 60% that are pretty solid, that are, you know, that haven't had all the greens blown up and routings altered. Um, so we're saying probably... Yeah, maybe 180 to 200, you know, are really good and solid still out there. It's, Ross is a architect that now I feel like almost every major city has like a, a public Donald Ross course. And whenever I, somebody asks me for recommendations in different cities, I always say, I always look up like Ross courses in the area because it's usually a, a pretty sure bet that it's going to be decent and you know, amazingly, it's always it always seems like those courses are also the most affordable ones in different cities. Um, what are some of your favorite public Ross courses that you've seen? Ooh, that's a good one. Triggs Memorial is really good in Providence. Uh, Wilmington Golf Club down in Wilmington, North Carolina. All oh, the bones there are really good. Um, obviously, Newton up in Boston and Commonwealth. Um Let's see, Rabislow here in Chicago. Um, I mean, almost every town has something great, you know, something really good. Uh, Ross, even if you go in Detroit, you know, Rackham, oh, you know, the the highway kind of ruined Rackham a little bit, but Rackham has so many good bones. And then, and then, uh, gosh, you know, even in North Carolina, there's so many great, you know, obviously, you know, all the ones around Pinehurst, they're all, you know, Southern Pines is, is so underrated. You know, there's so many good part fours at Southern Pines. Um, and then obviously a bunch in Florida that don't get any love. I'm going to Pinehurst soon and that's a definite stop is going to be at uh, Southern Pines. That's, I hear Great Bones could be something really special. Yeah, that, uh, I've been politicking, you know, for that. I know Kyle Franz is uh, 
the man down there right now and he's a good buddy of mine but uh man southern pines you know when uh when i go play golf trips with buddies and we go down to piners it's like okay number two dormy you know pine needles mid pines but hey boys like come with me i'm gonna show you something in the afternoon that'll you know rock your socks off for forty dollars and we can drink some beers and have fun and the architecture will really wow you and then at the end of the trip they're always like man i think i had the most fun at southern pines because it didn't beat me up the greens are really really interesting the routings on you know the routing is unparalleled and the land it really gets hilly back there you know on uh, six seven eight nine ten i mean it's hilly for pinehurst so it's it's funny that zach blair and i went on that that long uh, san francisco trip and the one that i mean san francisco golf world-class cal club world-class you know pasatiempo world-class golf course but the one that sticks with us as like just like the one we talk about the most is northwood yeah northwood is really special i I, in in 2012 i took uh two months off and i did a california you know just deep dive and i visited something like 67 clubs in two months and northwood up there literally no one ever spoke about it and the only reason i knew about it was because it was had mckenzie's name attached and I literally, I mean, I get chills right now. The hair is standing up on the back of my neck, how good Northwood is. And, and you know, and then there's like Etna Springs up there, which is great. What It closed, though. I know, it, or is closing or has yeah, closed. But has. that was really cool what Doak and, and George Waters and Kyle Franz did up there. That was really inspiring. And, oh, but yeah, Northwood. Whew. With those bunkers just sitting there, um, I mean, like how much would it cost to put those bunkers back since they're just kind of grassed over like i always have i always have wondered about that like what you know being an architect what do you think like just a general cost for putting that stuff back and time and materials it would be yeah you know andy that's a great question you know there's so many courses like this you know down here south of chicago kankakee elks you know the same thing there are there are almost trees you know, sitting in existing bunkers and saying, same with, uh, out there at Northwood and maybe Wakanda, you know, in Iowa, you walk around Wakanda and you're like, oh my gosh, this Langford and Moreau. I mean, the bunkers are sitting out there in the woods and, um, it's just, it's unbelievable. You know, all this stuff is sitting out there. Same with Northwood, you know, those sequoias though <laughs> are a little larger there, but cost, I guess, uh, Really, you would just be probably taking out six to eight inches of topsoil on the bottom of those bunkers, putting drainage in, and then putting five inches of compacted sand back. Sand is expensive depending on, you know, what kind of sand you're getting. And uh, But really, you know, the shaping would be very minimal, you know, just a little bit of regrassing, you know, drainage and sand. So 67 clubs and uh, courses in two months. What was your outside of Northwood, your, your best find in California that might not get talked about enough. Pacific Grove is really, really special. You know, Monterey sure gets a lot of love now, but maybe in 2012 when I was out there, I think a lot of guys didn't understand how great Mike Strand's, you know, vision artistry was. So when I was visiting the shore, I was, really blown away by his artistry yes yeah, san francisco golf is really really good so good uh gosh cow club though i was really just blown away you know everybody you know talked about cow club but 
you know, like that seventh hole, I think it is, the boomerang par four that they added, you know, that still felt really McKenzie-esque. And the work by George Waters and Kyle on those uh, bunkers, you know, for, for Kyle was really cool. But I think Cal Club blew me away. You know, it was so good and so, you know, it was so close to the other ones up the, there. All the little details at Cal Club just make it so good. And just the way it plays also, getting the fescue in there and yeah. getting it playing bouncy and firm and fast, yeah, which is super, so rare for that area. Yeah, super firm, super firm, super fast. You know, the land, uh, the land has that charm back. You know, the ground is alive. Bobby Jones played the AM out in California, and that's where he started, ran into McKenzie. And, and had it not been for that, it was believed that Ross was going to be the guy that did Augusta National, correct? Yes. He and Ross were buddies, you know, from his time at East Lake and all that. Ross was at East Lake in 1913, and Bobby Jones grew up on the course. And so, really, all he knew was East Lake. And then Ross did uh, in 1920. Six or seven, he built Highlands Golf Club, which was Bobby Jones's really like mountain golf course, mm-hmm. and so which still exists pretty much in its exact state. And so, I think Ross had it. You know, Ross probably had. Uh, you know, Augusta was what 1930, 1931, and uh, yeah, he fell in love with Mackenzie out in Cypress Point and and all that. What do you think a Ross designed? How how would it differ from the Mackenzie designed? Augusta National. You know, they probably would have had some of the same routing. You know, the routing is so good at, at Augusta, the way he utilized those creeks and the, you know, the ski slope on 10 going down there and 11 and 12, how 12 is so underrated. And, and, uh, so the routing probably would have been pretty similar. And, but, you know, Mackenzie's flair for the extravagant and, you know, the buried elephants at Augusta, which have been softened over the years, which is sad to see. But, you know, I mean, Mackenzie, those old boomerang greens, like, like, uh, gosh, what is it? It was, I think, nine, you know, nine was pretty much almost a boomerang green, which been which has been totally changed. But you go to Augusta, like, number one, number one's green might be the best green out there. Yeah. You know, and it like beats you in the face when you when you show up. You know, you hit it out there, and then you get the one, and you're like, "Holy smokes, what am I in for?" And so, up that hill, and oh, you know, yeah, that plateau green. Yeah, uh, but no, I think uh, you know, I think Ross would have really done well there. But it's pretty cool, you know, Mackenzie. He was on such a run there. I mean, if you look at the top five in the world, and you have, you know, if you had, you know, I, I've heard Doke say in the past when I was at Royal Melbourne two years ago. I think that composite course might be the best course in the world. You know, PV, okay, Pine Valley, but the composite course at Royal Melbourne is so good um, when you take a couple of those holes from the east and put them in with the west down there. And then he has obviously has Cypress Point, which is, you know, it's uh, unbelievable. You know, the inland holes are so good there, and that's what makes it so good, you know. I got to play the jockey club in Argentina years ago. Uh, like I went to Argentina with my now wife um, and we were visiting her friend and it just happened. Her friend was dating a member of the jockey club and he's like, do you want to play? I'm like, yeah, I want to play. Yeah. Oh yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Cause like I was, I was thinking about it. I was like, I got to try and find a way onto this place. And it just turned out it worked out. Sure. But like you think about Mackenzie and he designed arguably the greatest course on uh, almost you could 
some of his courses in United UK, four different continents. Yeah, you know, he yeah. had a course that was in the conversation for the greatest golf course and on four continents, which is it's mind boggling. Yeah, and mm-hmm. probably three for sure. Exactly. Exactly. So it's uh, he's something that everybody kind of always says that he's the best, but it's it's tough to imagine, especially given the time and. But he also had great associates. It goes to show. Yeah, Mick Morkum down in, um, you know, down in Australia, he was really his right hand man. When when Mackenzie went down to Australia, you know, he obviously um, got together with those superintendents down there, Alex Russell and and Mick Morkum, and he taught Mick everything, you know, in just a whirlwind, I think sixty days or so. And and Tom Doak would know better than I would because he's consulting down there, but. Yeah, and then he kind of showed them his style down there and built the bunkers and this and that. Hey, this is what I'm looking for. And then those guys ran with it. And they really, I mean, gosh, you go to, you know, like Royal Adelaide and stuff like that. That place is divine. Like Kingston that, Heath. I mean, that stuff is so cool. Of course, out in so Perth, cool. Lake Karen, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, that's really cool, too. And nobody really makes that trek because it's eight hours from Melbourne, you know, and it's a brutal drive. But... Um, that's really, really underrated. Nobody really sees that though. Mm-hmm. Um, with Ross, what, what would you consider is his most underappreciated skill? Probably his most underrated skill. You know, everybody talks about his routings and his routings are just so fundamentally strong. You know, his routings are just unbelievable. Is his skill probably was showing up you know, and I've read so many of his site notes from Barton Hills and, and all over in America where he literally would, would write to his daughter Lillian and it would be October 1st. And he'd say, dearest Lillian, you know, your birthday is October 26th. I will be back, you know, in Pinehurst for your birthday. Okay, October 1st, I'm going to take the train from Pinehurst to D.C. And then I'm in D.C. for three days and I'm at Washington Golf and this and that and congressional and then... I'm going in Chevy Chase and then October 2nd, Lillian, I'll be in Philadelphia and I'll be at Lulu and Aronimank. And then I'm going up to New York. And and he would literally write in this letter to her, his travel, you know, for the month of October and say 1927. And it would literally stop, you know, DC, Philly, New York. And then he'd go up to Boston and then he'd take the train to, to Rochester and visit Aronda Coyter Monroe. And then he'd go to Detroit and then over to Chicago and then to Minneapolis. And so then he'd come back. And so in, you know, 27 days, he'd be back to Pinehurst and he'd visit 46 golf courses. You know, like in one day in Detroit, he was at Western Golf in the morning. And then he's, he was on his way to Chicago and stopped in at Barton Hills because the train went right by Barton Hills. And he just showed up at 2 p.m. and went around the golf course. And luckily, the secretary took notes from that day. It was like October you know, 20th, 1925. And they have his site notes and it's like Donald Ross showed up and went around and wanted the four bunkers deeper. And, you know, he was really happy with this and this, but he wanted to change one of the greens and then change the tees here. And it was just like so interesting to hear while, you know, he just popped in on his way to Chicago, but long winded, you know, sorry to go on a long diatribe to get back to your question what was maybe his most underrated skill was how did he keep all these golf courses in his brain and, and keep them all, you know, I don't know, he alphabetized them or what, but how do you, okay. How do you know, like Barton Hills, this green is supposed to be over here and this and that, 
when you just show up and, and, and then you're on your way to Chicago and you've just visited 42 golf courses in a month and you've gave directions to each one about what they should do with this. And, you know, and he was so good with agronomy and grass types and soils. And he worked in so many different, you know, like Northland up in Duluth has literally the worst red clay I've ever seen. And then conversely, you go out to Portland, Maine and it's beautiful sand and, and, uh, and you go down the Pinehurst and it's totally different as well. And so he had to be so agronomically, you know, agronomically sound, giving advice to all these different clubs in different climates and, um, know all the seasons and, you should plant here at Monroe. He gave directions that you should plant by August 1st. So these greens are grown in by next spring and you can open up the golf course. And it's like, it's just, that's just, I think, you know, his knowledge, his, you know, his itinerary and the way he travels, it's just mind boggling now where we fly from, you know, club to club. And I might visit 15 clubs in a month or 20 clubs in a month, but I get home and I'm like, okay, what did I tell these guys? Okay, this, okay, boom, boom. It's really tough, and he was doing that on a much larger scale. It, he, he had to have a photographic memory. And and you look past you know the architecture and the agronomy knowledge, but he also was like a master club maker. He, was a, 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 he had high finishes in the U.S. Open, the British Open, uh, or the Open Championship. Yeah. It's, uh, and it's crazy to think like, this guy is probably the most well-rounded, most versed man ever in the history of golf. Yeah. And then Andy, to even top that off, he was affluent and could mix, you know, with high society down in Pinehurst and shake hands and, and speak eloquently, you know, and he only had a eighth grade education and he was, you know, his father, he was a carpenter and everything in Dornick and you know, where did he get, you know, he must have been a genius. And so when Ron Pritchard and I have these discussions, we're like, this guy had to be, his IQ had to be through the roof. But to have all these, all these assets, you know, and capabilities of being able to work with the foreman out, out in the, you know, out in the field and explain what he wanted and get what he wanted built. And then go in and speak with the gentleman, you know, um, like one of his best friends was, um, Mr. Ford, you know, he got all that work in Detroit because Mr. Ford would come down to Pinehurst and he was like, ah, oh, you're the man down at Pinehurst, you know, Donald, we need you. We need golf courses in Detroit. Same with the white bear yacht family, um, up in Minnesota. That's how he got all his Minnesota work. That was his connection. And so in 19, you know, early 1912, 13, 14, 15, he was going up there every summer to visit the family from the White Bear Yacht Club. And that's how he got Cedar Rapids in 1915. And that's how he went to Minicata. And then he got Woodhill. And then he got Northland and Interlochen. And so his connections were, you know, unbelievable. And so this gentleman was, you know, just basic education, you know, and he comes over, he emigrates in 1899, and then somehow he, his brand, you know, he built himself from zero. I mean, I remember reading, he, you know, he hardly had enough money to get out to Oakley Golf Club when he first arrived and, you know, off the ship. He basically walked the seven miles because he couldn't take the train car because he didn't have enough money, you know. And then he built an empire where he at one point had 2,000 guys employed, you know, in 1928 before the stock market crash. And, I mean, I just don't know how he had the capacity, you know, to uh, to keep keep everything rolling. Yeah, I can't imagine he slept that much. No, <laughs> no. But you know, the only thing that I, I want to do want to say though is when you're taking train, 
you know, when you're taking train travel, it's a lot different because what would happen is, you know, when he, when his notes from clubs is, you know, somebody would pick him up at the train stop and then they would take him directly to the golf course. And so he never really drove. So and so all that time. he had all this time to, you know, okay, what's your land like? What's this? Okay, that, this is where we're going. And then he would have dinner and everything like that. And he'd have his site notes from the day. Then he'd get on the train and he'd have an hour, two, three, four, five, where he could write down all his site notes and do his whole by whole drawings. He wouldn't do the master plans. He'd send them down to, to um, or send them up to Boston to Walter Irving Johnson, who would delicately, you know, handcraft these beautiful master plans and ink them on linen. But Ross would send his whole by whole master plan or whole by whole, you know, drawings with site notes and, you know, about the character, the topography, this and that. But he had all this time on the train to decipher that and knock out all the work. You know, say he was at Hinsdale and, you know, then going up to Oak Park or Evanston, you know, that night he would just write everything down about Hinsdale and then clear that off his book then go to Oak Park, you know, and then knock out Oak Park for the day and knock out all those drawings that night. And, um, I think that was really, really special. That's with, uh, technology today. I think it almost makes it harder a lot of times. Exactly. All the emails and all the calls, you know, like we were walking around earlier and I have nine missed calls and four emails and it's nine 45 this morning, you know? And it's like a lot of times the emails, like they aren't like fast to get done it it takes a long time to answer a lot of these questions it's not like you know it's like writing sometimes i feel like if i spend an afternoon writing emails back it's like i've written like a whole article it's like i mean and then one technology i'm excited for is a drivable car yes that'll be almost like we just talked about where ross was being driven around everywhere and sitting in a you know sitting in a train car you know so it's uh so what uh You've seen 2,500 golf courses to date. You've seen all these Ross courses. What Ross courses are you most excited to see that you haven't seen yet? Wow. That's a, that's a tough one. Really, the ones I haven't seen are the tough ones just to get to, like Banff. You know, there's not much Ross left at Banff, but I, I want to get up there anyway because he was there. Um, gosh, what do I have? I have the one in Missouri. Um, yeah, I have like the one in Kansas called Shawnee. Um, I have Hillcrest, French Lick. I haven't seen uh, a bunch in Florida. You know, Florida is so tough to get down to because it's like in the winter time, everyone is down there. And that's my, you know, from, from Christmas until really February 1st or March 1st is my kind of time to get away, go to California, go to, um, Australia, New Zealand, go to Europe and see everything. But it's really hard to get to Florida because everyone's down there. And then the summer, I'm really busy. And so it's 100 degrees down there and nobody wants to be down there. So I literally have out of the 30 golf courses, you know, 30 more Ross I have to see, you know, probably 20 are in Florida. And then the other thing is I'm not really excited to see this stuff in Florida because it's so flat. The land is devoid of so much character. I think Um, a lot of it's been been killed too over time with... You know, so many architects oh. work down in Florida. Yeah, so. everything's, you know, cyclical down there. It's like, oh, it's 10 years later. We need to blow up our golf course. And so I've seen Seminole and I've seen Sarah Bay and Timaquana and some of the good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, right now, I don't have the urge to see the rest. Of, you know, I want to finish off the list, 
And I thought I was going to be the first guy to see every Donald Ross course, but obviously there was a guy from the Donald Ross Society who beat me out for that. And I sent him a nice email. I was like, man, how did you get to all these? Like, there are some that are brutal. You know, there are some, uh, you know, way out in uh, Nova Scotia and Halifax and stuff, Brightwood and Liverpool, you know, White Point, which is way down, you know, Nova Scotia. And I've made the rise up there and tried to see them all. But, you know, and then I have a couple... uh, you know, up in northern New Hampshire, I have to see. I've seen everyone in Maine, everyone in New York, everything in Pennsylvania. What uh, what are the what's your top five? Who, you know, top five probably uh, would be. I mean, was, that's really really hard. But Glens Falls is really really good up in New York. I mean, it's it's really good. And then right down the road in Rome, New York. Um, there is Tuyujica, which is literally like going back in time and seeing, you know, what Ross would have done. He spent so much time there because he had a girlfriend there, um, Florence Blackington. And it was after his first wife, Susie, died in 1921. So he was really up there in like 22, 23 a lot. And I think he had a really big hand there with um, the Walter B. Hatch. And Walter B. Hatch was so, so, so talented. It, it, one of his associates because Walter B. Hatch built Glens Falls. He built Tujica, um, you know, some other ones that, you know, something that's so underrated that nobody knows about is called Thendara. Thendara is up in the Adirondacks. It's like literally almost like a Rainer golf course. There's, it's so bold. You know, there's like a boxcar on the ninth green buried in the green where it's literally raised four feet above the rest of the putting surface. It's unbelievable. But no, to um, Wanna Moisset, the greens at Wanna Moisset, Every single one has character. There's not one flat green there. And so Wanda Moisset is cool and small and the property's, you know, it's pretty tame. But Wanda Moisset, the greens are unparalleled for a Ross golf course. And then you have Essex County. I mean, the crown jewel. He spent so much time there. And then, you know, Aronimink is really special. You know, that was J.B. McGovern's home course. He was the green chair there and built it. And that's why the greens have so much character at Aronimink. And Aronimink's like everything about is about scale at Aronimink. You know, the property's big. The clubhouse is big. The bunkering was big on the master plan that Ross drew. You know, and J.B. McGovern had a proclivity to build small bunkers. And then that's what Gil Hans just put back is all J.B.'s 180 eight bunkers or whatever that he split he would split ross's big bunkers into small bunkers but um you know in oakland hills oakland hills is uh really great and northland the one you know you, you said five i probably listed six or seven because i can't stop that's fine we I'm not, yeah. i don't really like it yeah, we're just limiting. yeah we're just gonna keep moving you know but northland might be one of the better routings uh and and we're I've been so fortunate to work with Ron Pritchard on that, you know, and I'm actually going back in a couple of weeks to re, you know, to restore some more holes, but the, it's sitting on Lake Superior and it's on the side of this huge bluff and Lake Superior literally looks like an ocean. And so it is a Minnesota golf course, but it feels like you're in California or on the Atlantic and in Maine. And so literally you you have cliffhanger greens that look like the water's right behind the green. And so Northland is, unbelievably special and it's finally getting some recognition and you know that's one golf course though that ron pritchard i feel like he's seen every raw score you know golf course there is he has stated to the membership that he thinks that could be top 40 in america and i'm i was even like whoa ron you never give praise you know that is that's pretty cool and he's like yeah it, 
You know, so when we talk about routings, that might be one of the best Ross routings there is because it climbs this almost mountain-like terrain and then it loops all the way back down to 18 at the clubhouse. And so nine is like the furthest part away. You know, it's like a British Lynx kind of style mm-hmm. um, routing. And so he really went outside the box there. And then it took three years for that course to be built because it's on such hard clay, that red clay. And the seasons are so short. So they would build like six holes in 1925, six holes in 1926, and then six holes in 1927. And so it literally, his master plan is from, you know, I think it says 1925 on it. And it opened, you know, like July 4th, 1927. (laughs) So it's pretty cool that it took that long. And then the last one I want to mention, I'm a homer for is Mountain Ridge in New Jersey. Everyone talks about Plainfield. Everyone talks about Aronoming. You know, everybody talks about all these other clubs in the Northeast, but nobody knows Mountain Ridge. Mountain Ridge has greens that are even cooler than Plainfield and Aronoming combined. And it's a, you know, it's a smaller club, 300 members. They don't like their name getting out much, but if you go to Mountain Ridge, it got, it got Golf Digest Restoration of the Year, I think in 2011 or 12. And Ron, I mean, knocked out of the ballpark it's so cool but you can literally play golf at somerset hills with with buddies and then go up the playing field and you're like guys i'm going to take you to mountain ridge and then you go play mountain ridge and they're all like i've never heard i've never seen this this place is epic it's like you know and i'm a softie for somerset hills it's maybe my favorite if i were to join anywhere but bitterman where i play in wilmington delaware i'd i'd join you know if i ever had the privilege you know somerset hills has a sweet spot in my heart but yeah. Mountain Ridge is, it's like this place that if you went and played, Andy, you'd, you'd be like, why doesn't anybody talk about this? But it is in the Golf Week Top 100, so they do get it. Mm-hmm. So That's the best is finding those places that nobody talks about. Do you, so you grew up caddying at Aronimic. How much of, you know, walking around that golf course every day as a kid do you think played a role in you becoming a golf course architect? Yeah, 100%. I grew up playing GAP, Golf Association Philadelphia, their junior tournaments uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And we would go play Huntington Valley, Marion, Lancaster, Aronimink, Manufacturers, Lulu. I mean, the list goes on. You know, Lehigh, Saucon Valley, um, even Scranton, Country Club of Scranton is unbelievable. That's a Travis, know? right? Yeah. And it's like the greens are like the moon. You know, Travis is so underrated with his green building. But you know, so I would play in you know, a Philly cricket and Rolling Green and Plymouth and all these Flins. And, and so I saw, you know, when I was 11 and 12 and 13, 14, 15, 18, I saw all these great golf courses. And then I'd go back and play my municipal, you know, public golf course that I grew up on. And I'd say, well, this is very different. You know, this, why are my greens so bland? And I go up to you know, Marion and I put it off the green and it's not because they're super fast, which they were, but the contours are incredible, you know, and there's, you know, the routings are great. And so I had this great appreciation from age, you know, 17 of, I was in a special place. These are special golf courses, you know, um, caddying at Aronimic, caddying at Wilmington Country Club, you know, seeing great golf. And so when I was at caddying at Aronimic, Ron Pritchard did the 2002 restoration there. And it, I think, you know, I think that one golf digest restoration year, I'm pretty sure. And that literally spun the golf world, you know, in Philly in the Northeast a little bit. I mean, Ron Pritchard's his phone rung, rung off the hook after that. And that led to him getting all these other unbelievable courses, you know, Charlotte Country Club and the 
and uh, some of the bigger name clubs that he and I have worked with. Um, but yeah, I mean, just caddying, seeing how these guys were, you know, utilizing these slopes on the putting greens and it was just something different, you know, and Philly is such a hotbed. I've been super blessed, you know, Oh, uh, not last summer, the summer before I spent two weeks out there, I got, I played in the mid amp. So I got to do a big tour and then my buddy got married out there. So I spent another week and it did, you just, two weeks was like just scratching the surface. It's, I mean, there's so many, so many cool places to see. And, uh, it's it's definitely I think it's a clear number two city in in America for golf. Yeah, I know, I know. Number two is hard for me to say, but you know, New York metro area and Long Island, it's it's pretty hard to beat that. You it's, know, it's a, it's a different conversation if you split Long Island off and right. And, you delete Long Island out of the scene, Philly crushes. You know, New York metro. I think you know New, North New Jersey, New York. I think it gets it, but. Then you get in Long Island and you got the Garden Cities and the Shinnies out there and the Atlantic and Maidstone and it it's, can't compete. You got with like all a that. place like National. Southampton, nobody mentions. Oh, I know. <laughs> or West and it's Hampton. right next to National and it's so good. It's so pure. Yeah. And so, yeah, Long Island itself has 30 unparalleled golf courses and it's all sand. You know, the stuff on the sand, the ball, you know, the ground's alive. That one, you know, the charm is back. Yeah, so. it's that's the, the getting the ball bouncy, getting oh. the, the ball to bounce. The is ground so game. important. The British to, Isles ground game to golf. It's yeah. uh, so you you've mentioned you work for Ron Pritchard a great deal. You've also worked for Keith Foster and then Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw. So what what is if you were going to say one thing that you've taken from each guy as what they are just so great at? What would it be? Uh, so Keith taught me scale. You know, when I was with Keith, we were doing colonial, um, Baltimore five farms. I was doing the plans for Philly cricket plans for Moraine. Uh, we were doing fresh meadow up in Lake success, New York, up on long Island, um, orchard Lake. We were doing that. And so you would walk orchard Lake with all these weeping willows and all these small fairways. And he'd say, Tyler, you need to get back to Allison scale. You know, big bunkers, big greens, big fairways, you know, big rolls of the land. The rolls of the land at Orchard Lake are really incredible. You know, expose the topography. And so Keith taught me scale and, you know, really how to run a business, how to be an architect and how it's not just, you're not just an artist. You know, you're not just some guy who shows up. You know, Keith is so good at talking to the membership, educating the membership, um, you know, sitting down and working through the worst parts of a restoration or renovation, you know, working with a contractor in the field, beating the best product out of that contractor. Every contractor wants to show up and they want to be in and out, you know, in three months and make a ton of money. And that's their goal. And your goal as the architect and for the club and to honor the club and honor the client is to make enduring work, which Keith, you know, talks about a lot. You want that work to last for 50 to 100 years like Ross and all these great old clubs. You don't want to be some architect that comes in in the 80s and the next thing you know, in 12 years, it's being blown up because that work didn't endure. You know, it wasn't great and lasting. And so Keith taught me that, you know, to really take a critical eye. You know, Tyler, your eye, your eye is the most valuable asset you have. And you can go around with that green committee and the superintendent and the contractor and you you can work out every fine detail 
you know, oh, you know, this back corner of this putting surface is just off a little bit. Let's beat that down half an inch. Hey, this bunker, you know, I want this flashed a little more because I want to see a ribbon of sand from 200 yards away. You know, I don't want that high lip in front of the bunker to block the viewport into that sand. So Keith really taught me about, you know, that couple things there, obviously. Bill Kaur, same thing uh, at Dormy Club when I was living with Keith Reb and working with um, Jimbo Wright and Jeff Bradley, who were like the most talented guys in the industry. You know, I work, I did all the bunker work with Jeff uh, Bradley. And so I'd be in the bunkers every day. And then I did a lot of the peripheral work. Um, and Keith Reb was doing the fairway grading and tees and then Jimbo Wright did the bunkers. And so I was mainly with Jeff Bradley every day and Jeff Bradley taught me more about artistry and Hey, like, look, it's gotta be in the right spot. The bunker's gotta be located properly, but it's gotta be aesthetically pleasing, fit into the land naturally, you know, almost like that McKenzie style, you know, bunkering. And so I was in there with a shovel every day with Jeff and he's, still one of these my one of my best buddies in the industry to this day um and bill core would come out and he'd say tyler i don't want to see any beach balls over there you know and and you know with his funny you know his cool texas twang a little bit and and because i would you know i was such a novice in oh six oh seven i guess 12 years ago you when know, I was one, with of, one of the voicemails i'll never delete from my phone is bill core calling Andy, this is Bill Coor. Like it's yeah. just the it's, 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 the yeah. way his voice is. It's exactly. just so great. But he's so you know he's so mild tempered and yeah. and Ben and and but but they taught me about look the periphery. Everything matters. You know, at Dormy we worked so hard on the peripheral stuff. You know, it wasn't just about the greens and the tees and the bunkers that get so much attention. It was about every fine detail. And Bill wanted you know he beat me down about this bump. You know, and I thought I knocked it out of the ballpark and he'd be like, make it more weathered, make it more natural, you know? And then Bill also taught me that, you know, I was a abrasive 23 year old working with them. Their first intern ever, maybe, you know, since, you know, up until the new guys who have started working with them, but this was 12 years ago. And all the guys were like, how did you, how did you get on this job with us? Well, I wrote a letter to Bill Core and he actually called me, you know, I was like the first intern they had. You know, Jeff Bradley and those guys were like, who are you? <laughs> Why are you here? And so they just kind of brought me under the wing. And But um, but Bill and Ben are so, they're so um, just generous, kind, you know, mild-tempered. I learned from them that you have to, you know, like Bill Core would, would always say your name. Well, Tyler, I think we should do this. You know, hey, Andy what do you think about this? You know, he always used your name through your interjected your name to make you feel a part of the conversation. And that's one thing that's maybe way overlooked, but it's just, you know, it's like a life lesson, really, Mm -hmm. you know, treat your client, treat your friends, treat everybody the same, you know, interject them into the conversation and you're, you're all looking for the best product here. And so Bill, Bill Coors, you know, unbelievable. He's like the father of, you know, architecture right now. And, and then lastly, uh, Ron Pritchard, is the consummate artist. And he taught me that, look, you know, Ross never moved one tablespoon or teaspoon more than they had to. The economy of golf course construction was so tough, you know, in the twenties with teams of horses and scoops. Um, you know, everything was so, so much more arduous than it is now. And he taught me that, look, look, they didn't put all that fat around that green. That green was perched up and it fell right off from the green putting surface. There wasn't all this blown up extra mass because they didn't have the, you know, they didn't have the tools to move that dirt. And so 
Tyler, when you're moving this dirt or when you're building a bunker or a tee, think really, really carefully about why you're putting the dirt there or why you're stripping the dirt away from there. You know, every piece mattered, every little morsel. And so he really opened up my eyes to the fill pads being perched and, um, you know, dirt movement through a site, um, you know, horizon lines. You know, he's constantly still showing me, Tyler, look at Ross's notes here. Cut the bunker um, one and a half feet for the floor and fill three and a half feet for the shoulders, a.k.a. you're in the bunker, you're four and a half feet below those shoulders. Then you add in sand, so you're four feet below those shoulders. You know, and so that's something like the details in the the Ross notes, you know, that Ron just has beat into my brain that so many guys don't, I don't think, understand. You know, like it's supposed to be a hazard. It's supposed to be a half-stroke penalty. You're not supposed to reach the green sometimes from 180 yards inside this bunker. Ross had a four-foot berm here, four and a half-foot berm, you know, face bunker. So if you can't reach the green, you shouldn't have hit it in this hazard. So Ron is such a... uh, you know, historian and such a, a guy who's, you know, he's almost in the wrong era. You know, he deserves to be around in 1920. And uh, you're one of the younger architects. What's the biggest challenge? Well, you know, exposure, you know, one, I mean, I've never had the stomach for self-promotion, you know, so I really have never had a website until this past year. You know, Ron Pritchard's never had a website. And so exposure a lot, you know, a lot of the Ross guys know us a lot of ross clubs know us or or me but i've kind of just taken this slow you know slow stair you know stairways you know slow climb you know working with keith for a couple years back in the mid 2000s working with Corey crenshaw working with ron pritchard i've tried to slowly build my brand you know build who i am you know i'm like a design build guy and i want to be you know, and, and build my company like Gil Hans, where I can come in and I can shape that green for you. You know, I can shape the bunkers for you. And, you know, I've been shaping 12 years now and I feel really, really confident that I can come into any club and, and tell them this is exactly what it's going to cost. And I'm going to, you know, I can point to everything, you know, I can really feel really confident about, you know, um, my abilities and all that. And, um, but to answer your question, I think, you know, I'll, I'll continue to get more visibility and, and hire, you know, bigger projects. You know, the one live, you know, the one thing that's tough right now is I've interviewed at Scioto and, and some big, big time clubs and I've just come up short because I'm 32, 33, whereas somebody who's in their mid forties or fifties, you know, appeases to them a little bit more. Cause that's what the committee, that's what their age is. And it's, uh, it's a fascinating thing to me is, is how, golf course architects rarely retire right right (laughs) you know we hit our stride from you know 30 or 35 or 40 to 65 to 70 to 75 and so into their 80s right Pete die you know gosh i think he's 92 now yeah you know and uh but um no it's really just it's really tough going up against a 59 year old you know like if i go up against gill at aronimic you know it's like how am i supposed to retain aronimic it's pretty impossible you know so you know, um, but I've been fortunate to get some top 100 clubs like Monroe, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they're a new client of mine. Um, Cedar Rapids just got in the top 100 at 92, you know, Northland hopefully will be in the top 100 soon. Skokie, mm-hmm. um, Beverly. Yeah. That's, uh, so we're, we're sitting here in Beverly, uh, in the clubhouse, great Chicago down Ross course. And 
you've been doing work with Exmoor and Skokie and Evanston in the area. And we talked a little bit about golf scenes. Like how, how do you feel Chicago stacks up with Philly and New York and Long Island and San Francisco? You know, we've kind of been touching the major metro areas. Right. No, uh, the one, the one thing that you need for great golf is land, you know, and the unfortunate part with Chicago is it's so flat in so many areas. And, and then, you know, the golf courses that stick out in Chicago, obviously that we talked about earlier, Chicago golf, Shore Acres, Old Elm, Beverly, and Skokie, all five of those courses have really great land in some part of their property. Yeah. And even though, you know, people may say, oh, Shore Acres is pretty darn flat with one, nine, 18, you know, 10 ravines. there, but the ravines are so on i mean there's so, they come into play so well like rainer routed that thing so well i think yeah, know, 10 11 12 12 is epic 13 14 the idea of him bypassing the lake yeah. and going into those ravines like everybody's like how is it not on the lake it's like well it's probably the one of the greatest routings of all time exactly exactly so chicago it's just in my opinion i've seen i feel like every time i'm in chicago i try to walk on another golf course and so yesterday i went and saw three other golf courses you know and and um i have just a couple more on my radar left to see um but it's just it, you're just so disappointed when you go onto a golf course and you're like ah oh, the land is so devoid of character you know i wish there were there was more character and one thing that i won't go too far down the rabbit hole though is Chicago was early Ross. So from like Hinsdale in 1913 to Beverly in 1919, the LaGrange, LaGrange was probably one of his last in 1921. So in eight years there from 1913 to 1921, Ross did, I think 10 golf courses. Tons. Yeah. And the only one knock is that there's a lot of back to front greens, you know, not a lot of them have supreme amounts of character because it was early Ross. It was Mm -hmm. teens, you know, Ross really started interjecting a lot of character and heavily, bunkering his golf courses more in the twenties because he was, he was, you know, changing his practices and theories because the ball was advancing and the, you know, steel shafts were coming into fruition in the late twenties. And, um, so then he started more heavily bunkering his fronts of greens and putting more bunkers out there and then adding more character in the putting services. So unfortunately for Chicago is it's early raw. So a lot of them are pretty basic greens perched up still, really solid routings but flat you know like oak park's pretty flat you know but these they got these great perch greens mm-hmm. you know and and uh Exmoor, you know it has a roll in the land there a little bit you know a bluff where the clubhouse is but it's pretty flat um you know indian hill you know pretty flat they have drainage problems it's so flat and uh you know hinsdale has some rolls out there lagrange has a few rolls but to to finish off what i was you know getting at is you know, Chicago is such a great city. It's one of my favorite cities and I'd, I'd live here tomorrow, but it's just, the golf is a little flat, you know, yeah. it's a little boring. Whereas you go to Philly and it's like, woo, you know, the stuff's in your face. You go to Northern New Jersey, New York, it's in your face. Boston, really hilly, you know, California, we just talked about even in LA with Bel Air and those yeah. great ravines and arroyos and, you know, that thing's in on the side of a mountain almost, you know, yeah. in Beverly Hills and, and Riviera, you know, with the golf, you know, clubhouse Canada. way up on there. And, you know, like LACC, maybe one of the best restorations in the world, you know, that gilded out there. Whew, it's great property, you know. And, and that's, I always say, Chicago, we, we lack like the star power of that. And, and really what it comes down to is land. Like we have so many great, like second tier golf courses, 
but we just don't have like a plethora of top tier courses where like a, a New York, you know, you, you go down the list and you get to 10 and you're still like this world-class golf course. We get to three, two, <laughs> but yeah. uh, I mean, so we're at Beverly and it's one of the core, it, it's obviously constricted by, by being inside Chicago proper. I mean, you're in the hub. I always joke. It's the loudest golf course in the world. You got planes flying over you, but it's also one of the most unique in the sense of its history, the history of the land. How do you approach a project like Beverly where you have a rich championship history? Like, you know, what are you looking at when you start to develop a master plan? What we look at, you know, is I came into the clubhouse and I, I got together with Kirk Spieth, the superintendent, and and I said, look, I need to get up in the attic. You know, I need to get in the clubhouse and find anything I can, you know. And, and like Ron Pritchard, he's found old Ross master plans. Like he, he found an old Ross plan at Country Club of Buffalo that they never knew existed. And and so he's found, I think, four or five original Ross plans tucked away in the attics and in old lockers. And so we first tried to do that and try to find stuff that maybe isn't around or even known, you know. Known, like at Mountain Lake, I found a 1930 seven aerial on the Florida University of Florida's historical database and they never they never had any aerials before 1950 and so it's things like that where we really make our you know value we bring our value where we try to find and research all the old aerials any photography all the old newspaper clippings and I have a couple guys who I work with um, who do a lot of research with me who help me out so we first try to do a research period and say, okay, what did it look like? And and then we try to get a timeline of, you know, okay, Beverly. Beverly was a George O'Neill from 1908, and it's almost identically routed now. You know, Ross came in and just changed a few holes uh, on the front nine. The back nine's pretty much almost O'Neill from 1908. So when you see the 1908 on logo, it's pretty much a 1908 golf course. Ross came in in 1918, 1919, and I have all the newspaper clippings. And so we show the club the George O'Neill routing, and we show them the Ross, you know, changes in 1918, 1919. It opened in 1919, and there's all these great newspaper articles about those changes. He filled in a pond on 15, or on uh, 16, and then he lowered the ridge on 11 that we looked at this morning. Um, He rebuilt a couple, you know, he rebuilt every green site because the George uh, O'Neill greens were very flat, right on the ground. And so Ross perched all the greens. And so he was not very heavy handed in a routing sense, but in a architectural sense with adding the bunkers, uh, perching the greens, uh, putting the character in the greens. Um, so then we, we go through and we try to unmask the layers. Okay. What? Okay. 1908, we have that 1918. We have what, you know, Ross did pretty much, you know, from the newspaper articles and everything. Then we see, okay, 1931, we have all these great photos because they had the U S amateur that, Francis, we met one and Bobby Jones was here. Everybody was here. We have all these incredible photos from 1931, but we do know from 1918 to 1931, some things changed. Chick Evans was local, great golfer. And he came in and he had a proclivity or, a you know, he loved tinkering with bunkers and putting these little noses on all these bunkers. So we see in the 1931 aerial that there start to become these noses in you know, 10 to 14 of the bunkers where Chick Evans was kind of tinkering out here. Um, so then we kind of, okay, we know what Chick did. 
Then we see aerials from 1939. We have 49, 59, uh, 71, you know, all the way up to 85 and then now. Then the trees started, you know, encroaching. All the trees were planted in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Then the fairway line shrunk. Then the green shrunk. Then they brought in Bob Lohman and a couple other guys in the 80s and they rebuilt green number seven, number eight, and they moved to green number nine because of the green or because of the expansion of, uh, of, yeah, of, uh, I call it highway 87 because it's like a highway, but, but 87th street. And, uh, so we know that those three greens were rebuilt. And then we do know that green six was rebuilt, but we think by Ross, um, because we have an aerial that shows it mid movement when they push back 7T for the old Lake Michigan bluff to come into play. So we basically know what greens were rebuilt, uh, how the routing was. And so then we, we begin to build our master plan with all that, you know, the foundation of all that stuff. We say, wow, well, we got to do a lot of tree removal, you know, cause we're going to try to open up the playing corridors. We're going to open up the, widen out the fairways, put the bunkers back to where Ross had them. Um, you know, rebuild the tees, lower them a little bit. You know, in the 80s, they brought in all this fill, you know, a contractor, somebody did. All the tees are five feet in the air. They're all perched. And so we're going to try to beat down the tees, you know, to six or six inches to a foot above grade, widen so them it's out. A better workout. You got to walk up the hill. Right, every right. Tee box. Every tee box, five feet in the air. You know, it's like, where did the caddies stand? It's, it's funny. I, I came, I played here in 2010 for the state am and yeah, I, I, for, I didn't even think about the tee boxes, but then we come out here and like it's like one of the first things that you notice like when yeah. you come with a different, uh, you're looking at a course from a different lens and different perspective now. It's a, But God, it, it looks so much better with it, with the tree removal. I mean, the corridors, being able to uncover all the different green sites and seeing them close together and, and the layers and, you know, having bunkers on other greens that deceptively look like they're on on other holes i mean the the routing was really good for o'neill i mean he i mean he did a great job unbelievable i mean the routing at beverly the back nine is i don't know how how you can do any better i've tried to think about it but yeah it's it's unbelievable and yeah i mean so now we're just detreeing the property trying to expose the topography because what you know what we talked about earlier is why chicago golf you know, why is it just lacking and why is it a little, you know, behind other metro areas because of the topography? Well, what is Beverly blessed with? Unbelievable topography. I mean, it is a roller coaster out here. It is like being in Philly or New York or or it's like being in San Fran, you know, and it has these big valleys and big high points. And so we want the topography to be the star here and show, you know, expose that. And we're going to add, you know, light fescue throughout the golf course so we have that aesthetic um so we have that pleasing you know those different colors out here in the summer and you know uh just really expose its assets and uh get the golf course back and you know and um, hopefully bring it back into the really top five conversation as you know chicago golf club yeah i i think it's there i i mean i'm i'm biased i'm i'm a classic golf course lover and uh my my top five is different than a lot of the the magazines. So it's but this is this has always been a place that ever since I played here that back then I've I've just loved this place. It's it's got so much and and it is it's the dramatic aspect of the land. I mean it's mm-hmm. it's got some really interesting holes and it it's got fairway slopes. It's got 
you know, you have to hit over, it's got some blindness to it. It's got really unique green positions where they're perched on up on like little knolls where you, you know, as what we've seen with the, the tree removal out here is it's bringing back these infinity style greens that, you know, really mess with your eye and, and then mess with your mind when you're standing over a shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. that's that's the best thing I learned from Mike Strands growing up and traveling with my father to go see, you know, Royal New Ken and Caledonia and True Blue was Mike Strands would beat you off the tee before you even hit your first shot at Tobacco Road. You're like, oh, my gosh, the fairway looks like it's, it's non-existent. And so the mental part of golf, you know, that is so underrated where you're, you know, interjecting that doubt before you even hit the golf ball. And Beverly has that in so many locations where you're on seven and you're like, how far is, how far is it to clear that bluff? You know, we're on 11. Where is the fairway out there? You know, you're hitting a blind tee shot. And so it's these little things that golfers, you know, take for granted or don't really even, you know, have interjected into the game. You know, the doubt, the blindness, the, the little, you know, the scariness off the tee of, wow, the, the bunkers look scary out there. Like I better avoid these hazards. Mm-hmm. Who's your Mount Rushmore of golf course architects? Well, I, I I'm a Flynn Homer, which is funny because I work so much. I work so much on Ross, but I think Flynn's super underrated. Yeah, I mean, you you take his top five. I mean, you got Shinnecock and you know Huntington Valley and Lancaster. You know, Lancaster Country Club has maybe the best routing in America. You know, and Tom Doak I think has hit on that, but Lancaster is unparalleled in routing. I think it's the best routing in the world actually. And, uh, um, so Flynn growing up in Philly, playing Huntington Valley, playing Philly country. Um, I'm a Flynn Homer, you know, Marion, Marion is a Flynn golf course. I mean, Flynn, Flynn redid Marion for 1918, uh, 1924 AM, 1928 AM, 1930 open, you know, he tinkered with that all the way up until 32. And so he almost pretty much rebuilt Marion three times. It's, it drives me nuts because here in Chicago, there was an estate course called Mill Road Farm that was a Flynn. Like and the they, longest they called, Flynn ever. They yeah. called it the Oakmont of the Midwest. Yes. And he had a running bet with professionals that nobody could break par. And I think only Tommy Armour broke par. Like one guy of mm-hmm. hundreds, if not thousands of, of pros that came through broke par. Um, and then he also did Pine Meadow, which is a public course here. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable! It's a great piece of land. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, Joe Lee got his hands on it, mm-hmm. and uh, now Ooh. there's a bunch of lakes and yeah, a bunch of. It, but that up. would be a really cool place to see go back because it, it's owned by uh, a bunch of nuns. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, it's pretty neat. It's a, I think the Jemsic family owns the property still. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Or yeah. it has the long term lease on it. Yeah. So, but uh, wow. Well, to answer your question though, you know the Mountain Rushmore. Flynn would be my number one. You know, I wish he just didn't live that long. You know, he died, I think, in 1940 or 39. And it was just a pretty, you know, or maybe it was 44, I think. But it was it was before the Depression ended. Yeah. And, uh, but, um, no, Flynn. And then, you know, I love Walter Travis because his greens are so, you know, th- I'm throwing a wild card out there, yeah. Walter Travis. Cause, you got two wild cards. Yeah, but you go up to Cape Arundel. I did, I did that project for Bruce Hepner and, and Doak and, Bro, oh, Cape Arundel, the greens, it's like mini Augusta greens. And then you go to Country Club of Troy and, and um, I mean, gosh, they're, you know, Country Club of Scranton that I mentioned earlier. I mean, the, the you know, Travis 
had such a great mind for greens. He was such a great putter. So Flynn, Travis, you know, I got to go with Ross, obviously, you know, for routings and just the, the, you know, the guy was a genius. I just don't know how he did it, yeah. you know? And, and, um, and then McKenzie, you know, cause McKenzie had that flair, you know, that sexiness, you know, he was just, uh, man, he was a wild drinker and partier. I've heard all the stories down in Australia, you know, like he would, he would knock off work at two and, Man, he'd be in the bar till midnight, you know, with his bottle of, I think it was scotch or whatever he drank, you know, whiskey. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, um, so those five. Well, how many are on Mount Rushmore? Four, though, four. right? Yeah, yeah so, there's four. So I got to leave. No, you got, you got four. You got okay. Ross, uh, Flynn, Travis, and, and McKenzie. McKenzie. Boom. Yeah. There we go. Got to, got to <laughs> leave a lot of them off. Sorry, Rainer. Sorry, CB. I love those guys. And, but, Man, when you knock them down to four, it's tough. Yeah, it is. It's there's so many good ones out there, and you're not even including any of the modern yeah. guys. You know yeah. that. Have, sorry, modern. I'm sorry, modern guys. I'm yeah. a homer for the old stuff. I am too. It's, yeah. There's nothing, uh, nothing better than that. I think a part of the that's part of the why they're so popular now is that they were designed for championship golf now, and it's perfect for exactly. everyday golf now. Exactly. Yeah. So it's um. All right, we'll uh, we'll we're gonna do some overrated, underrated. So let's start with uh, template holes. Overrated. Sorry. Yeah, there uh, there's a place for them, but I th- you know I've seen them all. They work. They're great. Old McDonald's really cool, but when you find that one golf hole, like you go to Wood Hill and you're on the second hole, and it's literally a two or 20 hole where if you hit the green, you might make a two, but if you miss the green, you might make a 20, like an engineers, you know, one of those two or 20 holes. And you're like, I've never seen a Ross hole like this, you know, out of all the golf courses I've seen. So I like the ones where it's, you know, the land has dictated the hole and it's like a one-off and you're like, Oh my gosh, how cool is this hole? You know, like yesterday I was down at Calumet and the 16th hole there it's like this volcano par three. This green's way up on this bluff. It's the highest point on the golf course. It's like, whoa, how cool is that par three? And I know they've messed around with that green and knocked it down a little bit. But, mm-hmm. but um, no, I think when you utilize the land and you have a really unique hole, um, you know, like a Cedar Rapids, the ninth hole is 560 yards, but it gently climbs all the way up this big valley to a punch bowl green. And you're like, wait a second. Uh, you have a blind punch bowl green, like an Alps hole at the end of this unbelievably big valley hole that's reminiscent of 18 at rolling green. And you're like, I've never seen anything like this in golf. And wow. You're just like, this is Cedar Rapids. And then like another hole is Cedar Rapids. There's a, they call an old burial Indian mound. There's a mound that's 52 feet in the air on the 14th hole. And you hit a drive out to this flat fairway. And then this green's 52 feet in the air or 48 feet in the air that goes away from you. And you're like, this is so cool because it's unlike anything I've seen. And so, yeah, the templates have their spot and they're great. And the Redan's so great. And the, you know, Beer Ritz, you know, but like, how about the Beer Ritz at Somerset Hills that, you know, it's what, 10, 11, 12, 13, you know, that, uh, that Tilly put in there. It's like, it's a par four Beer Ritz, you know, and that was 1914. That was pretty freaking early for, you know, Barrett's really cool. 
It's uh, a lot of the best architecture breaks rules. Right. Like, you know, like nobody would build a, a green on a 52-foot mound that runs away now, a blind running away green. Yes. But yeah. it's it's so neat. It, there's a lot of like, you know, the most interesting routings are the ones that are very uh, extreme, like you talked about with Northwood climbing up and then the ninth hole is all the way or north far one, away yeah. from the uh, Northland, yeah, yeah. far away from the clubhouse. Like that's not an American golf traditional sense, and it's it's different. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, 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 and then you see with Rainer and Mac- McDonald, a lot of the greatest holes are non-template holes. Yeah, they're one-offs. Yeah, yeah, like a Yeaman's Hall and eleven oh. at Shore Acres. Yeah, yeah, exactly what we talked about earlier. Yeah, fifteen at Shore Acres. Yes, like probably oh. the two best holes on the golf the two course. Two favorite, probably. Yeah, yeah are yeah. are non-template holes. So yeah. that's a, that's something that frustrates me sometimes with Rainer is that everybody says like, oh, the templates, he just had the same, but like the holes that he found on each property were exceptional. He utilized the land so well with that surveying background of his, you know, he found, he found the Edens, you know, he found the, the Redans, he found the Baritzes, he found, you know, the prize dog leg and, Mm -hmm. and the road holes, he found them. So it took skill and Rainer is awesome. It's, It's amazing. He didn't know anything about golf until mind-boggling mcdonald hired him for the it national is, golf links yeah it just blows your mind but like yale like how good is yale you know that's mm-hmm. uh great land yeah really great land like almost mountainous land like going up 10 you know it's a skyscraper in front of you mm-hmm. you know and left of two you know it's like a 45 foot drop into that bunker yeah You're like well i better not hit it left <laughs> Overrated, underrated, professional golf. There's a place for it. There's definitely a place for it. Uh, But to answer your question, overrated in this time period. I think it was underrated maybe back in the day. You know, professional golf, they weren't paid well. Those guys were like grinding. Awesome. Now it just irks me a little bit that these guys just line it up on, you know, and just bang it straight. I just, I love the the Bubba's and the guys who work the ball and the Freddie Couples who hit the butter cut. You know, working the ball, I think, is a lost art. Ball doesn't spin anymore. Yeah, the ball doesn't spin and the grooves and all that. And there's just too much money, you know, involved. And, and there's, there's just no, you know, I'm a field player. I hit a cut, fade, you know, I work the ball around. And I just feel like there's there's none of that really left. There's just a couple guys. Yeah, I uh, I think I hope there's a hickory revolution. I played with hickories <laughs> in Northern California, and it's just a, it brought a lot of artistry and mid irons and step back into play and really like tough. You, especially when after you walk around a golf course like Beverly and you think about playing it from fifty yards shorter off the tee. Oh it's, yeah, it's like oh all of a sudden like this is a lot. This is a very difficult shot yeah and you have to hit really good it it just would bring so much balance back into it but it's it is more structured now and the wind would blow that ball that ball would move and drop suddenly you know it's almost like a knuckleball how the ball used to fly and it would just like come out of the air and just stop and you're like what happened (laughs) and then if you hit a real if you hit a bad one it just it goes nowhere miss hits were just tailing you know, zero, right off, you know, left or right. Part of me, though, thinks sometimes that that would be better for the higher handicap because they would go less offline. Like today, the ball just in the equipment, they 
high handicap players rarely hit the ball on line and the ball just soars offline further. Yeah, it goes further and further away from the line of play. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, wow, I really hit that one that time, but whoa, look how far right it's going. Like, it's like, I, you know, growing up caddying for like really good women, they just kept the ball in front of them. Like a lot of times they didn't get, to, but the, you know, the end of, end of the day, they shoot 82 and it's like, they did it by just keeping the ball in front. Yes, and like keep it uh, in play. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's crazy, but Everybody wants to hit it far. So uh, last overrated, underrated, 1920s Donald Ross. I would say, oh, well, we're finally getting to where they're, you know, back in the limelight. So I would say 20s are over, or 1920 would be overrated. His His real... His his unbelievable era was like twenty four to twenty eight, twenty nine. You know, he went on a run there when he where Ross did a Ronamink, then they went up the mountain ridge, plain field, then down the Seminole. I mean, they had a run there of like four years from twenty seven to thirty one. Oh my gosh. You know, they were like on fire. That's his guys when he hit his, his crew. peak. Yeah. So late twenties, underrated, early twenties early 20s i think he was just coming into his real real you know how old would he have been then he would have been about 50 years old right yeah he was um yeah he in 1899 when he emigrated he was i think he was 27 you know he was born in 1872 so he was 27 when he emigrated so yeah 20 um 1922 he was 50 so he was 48 in 1920. What happened is in 1921, he really spiked up his work. But then it's also when his wife died. So I think he had a little, he had, you know, from 1920 to 1923 or four, he just wasn't focused, I don't think, because his first wife died, you know, Susie, or, or, and she was, or, you know, I think that really took his, his uh, focus away. But in 1921, he had like 39 projects. So 1921 was his busiest year, but then his wife was dying. So I think kind of from 1919 to 1923, it might be overrated, you know, and then he like got his focus back. And from 24 to 31, when the, you know, when the real effects of the Great Depression knocked his business, you know, to zero, I think they had like three projects in 1930, 31, you know, Jeffersonville and PA was one of them and it was a public golf course. Um, but in 29, 28, 27, whoo, I mean, they were really, really doing some incredible stuff. Mm-hmm. So, all right, Tyler, thanks for coming on. It was yeah, uh, a fun Andy. talk. We'll have to do another one on, for sure. you know, another sure. subject. You, get, you got a lot of uh, knowledge from those travels. Yeah. Yeah. I love traveling. I mean, that's all I do is go walk off courses as much as I can and, I know it's addicting. I love it. It's my favorite thing to do. And thanks so much for having me on. And, uh, you know, for the young guys in golf architecture, you know, the next wave, you know, thanks for exposing us a little bit. You know, I really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, we can follow you on, uh, Twitter. Are you on Instagram too? I am, but I, really. you know, social media, it's like, I just don't have the time, yeah, you know, it's not worth but it. both at Tyler Ray design. Yeah. So, so. People can find you there, and then they can they can go check out your site too. So yep. it's uh all right. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon. Great, thanks, Andy. Bye.
You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.